Well, good morning. I'm Robert Randolph, one of the elders, and it, it finally got to the point where it was my time and, and to come up here to fill into the pulpit. And this is the first time doing that, and, and I kind of like using this podium up here. I know this is a little bit old school, but it always kind of gave me a little bit of comfort when I was using this in adult Sunday school. And, and so, yeah, maybe, maybe, it'll give me, maybe it'll give me a place to hide behind as well. So, you know, probably the last time I, I did something like this was, I don't know, it was probably all the way back to high school in a, in a graduation speech. And so it's been like 30 or 40 years since then. And, and I asked Dave, and I said, David, give me an idea of, of, of how many words that you use, how, how long do you usually speak up here? And, he, and he's telling me, and I'm thinking through my head, I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, only four, four or five times more than what Pastor David does. So I promise I'll get you out here before dinner tonight. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, for being almighty, for being powerful. And, and Lord, most of all, I, I thank you for your word and how you revealed yourself to us and, and that you designed your word for all of us to read it and understand it. And, and, and I of all people, Lord, thank you for that and, and praise you for that. So, so Lord, thank you for, for, for all of that you've done and, and may you be glorified in all that we do and, 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 and all that we say in Christ's name. Amen. So I like movies that kind of play around with time. I like time travel, warp events, time warps, repeated looping events. And, and my favorite, two favorite movies right now are Groundhog Day and, and Live, Die, Repeat. And so like other elders, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my testimony. But in the, in the process of this, I'm going to have you time warp back to me, back to my, my pre-Christian days, um, kind of sharing some of the... the Christian attitudes that I, that were shared at the time, and and then we're going to work back to today, and we're going to look at a few things that God taught me along the line, and I can I pray that it'll be an encouragement to, to all of us. So time warped back with me to to elementary school and high school. I wasn't really raised in a Christian family. At least we never went to church or or prayed or or talked about God in any meaningful fashion. Um, I liked school because it was easy, and I was good at it. But unfortunately, um, being smart was, was my primary identity as a person. God wasn't even on the list at the time. And, you know, I started judging kids according to my identity. And I think we all have a tendency to do that if our identities are misplaced. Um, so I started judging the kids and the people I hung around with according to how smart and remember, this is an attitude of an unbelieving teenager, so you got to come in a little bit slack. So I started judging kids about how smart they were, how stupid they were. So, so hindsight number one in your folder there, when our primary identity isn't God, our identity, our identity negatively affects how we view others. And I'm going to read um, Philippians 2.3. And, you know, I was, I, I was the opposite of this verse. So, um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And, and as far as I was concerned, I was pretty much at the top of the list for, for being smart. And, and, and that's just kind of the way I th- was at at that time. Now, you know, I'm not saying we don't have other identities. A lot of us have identify ourselves by our profession and, you know, are we married, are we single, are we parents, 
you know, our race and sex, are we Republicans, are we Democrats? I kind of kind of fall on that line a little bit. Um, so the problem is, is whenever we, whenever, whenever any of those things take first place in our lives over God, we're, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. I mean, it's no wonder our country's in such a mess that it is, the divisive mess. As an unbeliever, uh, I would have thought somebody was absolutely nuts if they told me that my primary identity that is, should be that I was made in the image of God. I'm saying, go, go away, don't talk to me. Um, so warped back to me to junior high. I could hold my own in sports, but it wasn't a passion. Um, what was becoming a passion was good grades, and, and I didn't just want A's. I wanted the best grades in the class. I wanted to crush the curve that was, that was in the classes, and more often than not, I did that without really too much of a problem. The few times I even considered the possibility of God existing might be overhearing some, some friends down the hall or in, just before class, and, and in my mind, I started to think about just how intelligent they were. And I started concluding that people who believed in God just weren't smart. That or if they were, they just had some sort of mental problem. I mean, what kind of crutch is this God thing that, that you guys are, that are that you're dealing with? So, unfortunately, I developed a disdain toward anything or anyone religious. And found myself one weekend, I, I was home alone, and I think the sisters and mom went off to gospel or something, <clears throat> trying to figure out what I was going to do sitting in, the sitting in the couch. And I saw this Bible sitting on the desk. I'm sure it was probably one of my sisters. And I decided to check out what dumb religious people read. And so I started reading the first chapter of Genesis, and the first thing I noticed that it was written in some kind of old English stuff that was really annoying to read. It didn't do much, too much for a good first impression. So I, I read through the first few chapters, and I got to look into this thing. I say, you know, this thing is so big. I think I'm just going to flip to the end of the book and see how it ends. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what? I couldn't believe what I was reading. I mean, we're talking about the wrath of God were caught, revealed in scrolls and trumpets. We're talking about devils and angels and wars and beasts with seven heads coming out. I mean, hell and mark of the beasts and 666 is kind of stuff like that. <laughs> and I'm saying out loud, this is the craziest, wildest fantasy science fiction book I have ever read in my life. Who in their right mind believes this kind of stuff? And I tossed it back on the desk and I said, I am never going to read that crazy book again in my life. So that was, that was pretty much my, my, my unbelieving time. So time warped with me to high school a little bit. <clears throat> I, I started developing a, a theory about whether God existed. Um, you know, in, in my teenage wisdom, math and science, they, they explained pretty much everything that was worth explaining, right? Uh, I was an av amateur, avid amateur astronomer and and so astronomy explained everything about the universe and its beginning, and, and biology and <clears throat> evolution. You know, that pretty much explained everything about life. I mean, who needs God? My problem was is that I really, really wanted to be an atheist. But darn if I couldn't disprove God, and that was annoying beyond words. So, I mean, it's practically impossible to prove the negative of something if the solution set is too far out. 
too big. I mean, if I, if I told you to prove that I don't have a purple penny in my hand, I mean, it, it, it's pretty easy. Just have me open up my hand. But if, if I have you prove, you know, is there a purple penny in all of North Hills? then it starts to become a problem because we're going to have to start grinding down every brick. We're going to have to start grinding down every, every piece of wood to see whether this purple penny got stuck into something. And so, I mean, I obviously couldn't look into the center of the sun and see if God had a vacation throne room in there or couldn't look into the center of our Milky Way galaxy and see if God was using a supermassive black hole as a footstool. So, to my annoyance, I couldn't disprove God as much as I wanted to, but for all practical purposes, I was a living, breathing atheist. I just couldn't actually get to that point. And, you know, work back with me a second. You know, I, I've yet to find an atheist that has a, a plausible explanation for disproving God, for proving God doesn't, doesn't exist. And, you know, they usually rely on some kind of philosophical or observational science rationales. And, and often enough, they, they try to turn the question back onto us, you know, like, you prove to me God exists. Show him to me. Let me see him. Let me touch him. If God exists, have him, have him float me up off the ground. And, and you know, it's... Looking back on that, it, those questions are so ridiculous. I mean, it's not like we carry the creator of the universe around in our pocket so that we can just pull them out on demand for somebody to look at them and see them and, and demand God make some kind of parlor trick display. It just, it just doesn't work that way. <clears throat> So time worked back with me to high school. And one day I went to the county library and, and I noticed a tiny book sitting on the table. And you can kind of see how that would sort of grab the attention of an amateur astronomer with the stars up there and stuff. But then I noticed the kind of the angel thing up there and, and got to thinking, you know, I, I'm pretty sure this is religious propaganda. But I sat down and read it anyway. Um, you know, the only thing I could particularly remember is that I didn't like was this thing said that I was going to hell. So, um, you know, and actually, you know, you know, in hindsight, I would have—I don't know if I would have ever remembered this that it was this track. But years later, after college, it turned out that I bought these tracks and was using it for my own personal testimony. And I kept having this niggle behind the back of my mind. It's like, I think I've seen this word someplace. And it finally dawned on me that this, you know, probably, you know, I can't say for sure because, I mean, this happened like 40 years ago or something. But this is probably the track, the same track that I use today that, that we're talking about there. <clears throat> So work back out with me. Bonnie and I, we, we took a trip to, to Hawaii, and at one point we were walking out on, on old lava fields. <clears throat> um, and several miles out, there was live active lava fields, and that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to see the red stuff. But when we started going there, there was a, there was a sign out there, and, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase and, and maybe add a little exaggeration, but the sign said something like this, danger zone, possible thin crust and fiery volcanic sinkholes may open up and swallow you at any time. 
And so, yeah, Bonnie was a sensible one, and, you know, I kind of walked out a little bit further, but we kind of made an agreement that once I lost track of her, I had to come back. And so, yeah, we're both back alive probably because Bonnie was, was the smart one there. So, you know, this, this thing had what I, what I would call a danger zone. And danger zones have a tendency to create kind of a hyper-awareness of where we're at. You know, when I was walking out there on those things, I was kind of making sure that, that it didn't sound too hollow underneath when you're walking. And it, it kind of gets the pulse pounding and, and the emotions going. And, and we start kind of getting ready to run or fight kind of, kind of thing. <clears throat> so just in case this thing was right, I wanted my fire insurance. And so I half-heartedly said some kind of prayer that I don't remember. I took the pamphlet with me and started walking between the bookshelves to, to the end of the library. And, and I got to thinking to myself, if, if this thing is real, does that mean I kind of have to stop swearing and stuff like that? And, and I said out loud, that's just stupid. So I took this thing, I walked back, tossed it on the desk, and, and walked out the door. And so that leads me to hindsight number two. Easy believism or fire insurance is not salvation. At least, you know, I, I can say that. Um, you know, and I know there are some here that would say that, that I was saved that day, but it, it just wouldn't be true. I was a clear example of the parable of the sower where the seed is the gospel and I was the infertile ground. So Matthew 13, 3 to 8 says... <clears throat> Jesus said, <clears throat> a farmer went out to sow his seed, and he was scattering the seed on the ground. Some fell along the path, and the birds came in and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came out, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. <clears throat> Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still others fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, 160, 30 times what was sown. But most condemningly is, is my life bore absolutely no fruit all the way through college. In fact, I was just the opposite fruit. I, if you look at your, if you look at your bulletin there, there's a, there's a list of scripture verses that describe the bad fruit of the unbeliever. And I just started sitting down and looking back at my life. And so, I mean, I had fits of anger, swearing, addicted to pornography, lust, lying, stealing, cheating, prideful, arrogant, and boastful, just to name a few. And all of this was done without remorse. It was without regret. And it was often done with enjoyment and satisfaction. I mean, there was no, there was no, in the back of my mind, I shouldn't be doing this. And oftentimes it was a great contentment because if I didn't get caught, um, and if I did get caught, you know, it was minimal consequences. And, and it was just with pride that, honestly, the ends justified any means. It just, it just didn't matter. Whatever, whatever I wanted or whatever I got or whatever my goal was, didn't matter how I got there. I, I just didn't. And in fact, this next event um, worked with me to, to high school honors English class, and the topic of God came up. And I asked, and, 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 and I was asked what I thought about God. And I said, you know, I don't believe in God, but I can't prove he doesn't exist. And some girl in the class said, well, I'll pray for you. And that instantly sparked a bit of anger. And I said, go ahead and waste your time if you want. And 
you know, there are a few collective gasps in the classroom. And, but, you know, I proudly stood my ground that day. And that was, that was pretty much my, my public, first public announcement that, about my lack of belief in God. And it was probably the best day um, of a theory of God percentage that I, that I was developing at the time. Matthew 10, um, 32 to 33 says, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before man, I would disown him before my Father in heaven. I was disowning God. God was the last thing on my mind. <clears throat> I was certainly a sinner deserving judgment in hell. So I, I graduated high school, but I wasn't too happy about being salutatorian because of 1B in first semester of my freshman year in a class I hated, and that was even before the time I knew there was such a thing as a competition for valedictorian. So time warped, time warped to college, and, and when I got to college, I quickly realized that there are a lot of people that are way smarter than myself way smarter than myself. In fact, one of my best friends at the time, um, he and I were roommates. He was without a doubt the smartest person I'd ever met in my life. <clears throat> he had an IQ that couldn't be measured. Um, he, it was estimated to be over 180. And I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing smarter than Einstein smart. This is, this, is, this is nuts. And so somewhere along in that line came a came a, a sledgehammer to my religious theory of God. See, I, I, I did my best to be an atheist, but I, I had a, in reality, I couldn't disprove it. So I had a theory of whether God existed, and it was always pretty low. I mean, like the time that I denied um, God in, in that high school class was down below 5%, which was probably the best moment in my life. Um, as a teenager, unbeliever, but... Um, we, we had a typical bowl session among friends, midnight session among friends, and, and everybody that was there that we were gathering around, they, they were smarter than me. I, there's just no competition. And, and everyone there contemplated the topic of God that night. And, you know, they, they figured, you know, God existed, and, and there was all kinds of different things. I mean, some postulated, you know, kind of a Star Wars force kind of God, and and... You know, to my amazement, some of them had even read the Bible, including my 180 IQ friend, which was just crazy in my mind. And so, you know, I soon quickly realized that I was willfully ignorant of anything religious because I had developed such a disdain toward anything religious up to this point that I wanted nothing to do with, with learning about God, just didn't want anything to do with it. And so I just sat there that evening, kept my mouth shut because I didn't have anything substantive to have and, and trying to keep my jaw off the floor. And, and to my horror, my theory of God's existence spiked to a whole time high of maybe around 40%. <clears throat> so time warped with me uh, a couple years to the last semester of my junior year in college. And I'm licking my wounds from a failed attempt at a girlfriend. And, you know, leave it to God to use a broken heart as a catalyst toward nudging me into reading the Bible. Um, but I was paranoid. 
that nobody would find out that I wanted to read the Bible. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I disdained people that read the Bible. So I surreptitiously found out that most people recommended an, an, an NIV Bible. And I went to a small bookstore, carefully avoiding the religious section, mind you, and I stood next to the aisle over here, pretending like, you know, I was reading a book, but really I was, I was looking over to the top of my book at the religious section, trying to find an NIV Bible that didn't look like a Bible thumper. Just wanted a plain Jane Bible. <clears throat> so when the last customer left, and I picked a small one on purpose because I didn't want anybody to see me buying it. So when the last cus customer left, I, I quickly snagged the Bible and sped to the checkout counter and hoped there was a price tag on it so they didn't have to go, hey, hey, Jack, what's the price of this Bible here? <clears throat> you know, I, I seriously felt like I was a kid buying a pornographic magazine. It was, it, was, it was not a good moment in my life. So, and even though it was warm outside, I made sure I wore a big jean jacket because the first place that Bible went was underneath that jacket. I didn't want anybody asking me what was, in, what was in the bag you were carrying. So I nervously made it up the elevator to my dorm room and stashed it underneath my bed, which was a pretty safe place to hide considering all the junk that was under there. And so I just waited until my roommate went home for a weekend, because there's no way he was going to say that. And, and I, I pulled this thing out. And I felt foolish, but you know, I figured probably the best way to start reading this thing is to pray <coughs> to a God I didn't even know existed. <laughs> and so like every other book I've read, I just assumed that it was written by some human, like an old wise monk with gray hair and long beard sitting on top of a mountain peak and, you know, writing, writing down words of wisdom. I figured that's what this book was going to be about. So I opened up the preface and started reading, and, and, and I was amazed. It described over 100 scholars and thousands of hours that were put into the translation of this thing. And even more to my astonishment, and I'll, I'll read a quote from the 1978 copyright version of the Bible, and this is that Bible that I bought. So this is in the preference, and it said, In working toward these goals, the translators were united in their commitment to the authority and the fallibility of the Bible as God's word in written form. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? People actually think that this was God's written word. And that was an amazing revelation to me, because I had no idea. Again, I just thought it was written by some wise old monk. So, so time warped back with me for a second to, to hindsight number three in, in, your, in your handout. The Bible is the literal, infallible, authoritative word of God. <clears throat> Galatians 1, 11 or 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And, and I'm telling you, I've, I've falsely thinking that the Bible is authored by humans leads to egregious misinterpretations. I mean, I, I've read some, some stuff that are so absurd because people insist 
that this was written by a simple fisherman, a shepherd, you know, some great-haired old guy carrying a rod. And, you know, they didn't have any understanding of modern astronomy, biology, sex, gender, psychology, evolution, or any other modern science. So they were just ignorant, ignorant people writing. And, and yes, God did use people to put pen to paper. But make no mistake, it is authored by the creator of the universe who has no bounds, lacks no knowledge that any science can even remotely come to, 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 to teach, and he is perfect. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. <clears throat> All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that every man may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, and, and we're not talking about partially equipped. We're talking about thoroughly equipped. We're not talking about some good works, but we're talking about every good work. This is the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need any other revelation, Koran, Book of Mormon, Apocrypha, no so-called word of the Lord from some self-proclaimed false prophet. All we need is God's word because it is sufficient. And I don't really have time to expound too much on number four, so I'll just read the answers. Um, read the Bible in everyday, normal, black and white, literal, common sense, natural reading that you would with any other book. When the Bible uses figures of speech, symbols and parables, it's teaching literal truths. And if the Bible appears to contradict itself, it appears it is our misinterpretation that's the problem, not some kind of biblical error. So time warped back me to the dorm room. I started reading Genesis in the manner of hindsight number four, and, and the thing that was going through my mind is that God just doesn't mess around. I mean, he's the creator of the universe. He, he's flooding the earth. He's nuking Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses versus Pharaoh. I mean, God is a big God, and you just don't want to make him mad. <clears throat> you know, and I could feel God tugging at my heart, but my brain kept getting in the way. When I got to the story of God leading Moses and the Israelites with a pillar of fire by night and a, and a cloud of smoke by, by day, I was really getting frustrated. I was saying... <laughs> This is bona fide proof of God. This is what I want to see. I want to see God at work. And here are these Israelites messing it up. I mean, what the heck? Why are they making a golden calf when Moses is going up getting the Ten Commandments? And, I mean, they were seeing the very things that I wanted to see. So somewhere along the way, when I was reading the Old Testament, I was wondering how I could find some information that would start satisfying my head. And keep in mind, especially you youngsters out there, there was no such thing as an internet. Um, the only way this, that you could get anything researched was going to the library, poking your nose into a card catalog, would, and finding the answers to even the simplest question took hours and days, and chances are your research wouldn't turn up anything. Um, so it just so happened, we haven't heard that anywhere, 
that a college religious group hosted a conference for evidence of God. And over many sessions, they talked about creation versus evolution, fulfillment of prophecy, accuracy of the Bible, and so on. <clears throat> I was soaking it up like a sponge, and, and they even mentioned something about a Jesus person and a resurrection, but I didn't really follow all what was going on with that. I mean, the only thing I know about Jesus is that his name was right there near the top of my swearing vocabulary. So my not, mind was no longer an obstacle, so I kept on reading. I got to Leviticus 11, 7 to 8, and I didn't have where I put this on the screen because, I mean, it's kind of a silly thing. Um, and the pig, though it has a split hoof, completely divided, does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcass. They are unclean for you. Oh, no. That means if I'm going to start taking this God, this God thing seriously, that I've got to stop eating my favorite pepperoni and Italian sausage pizza. And, and you know, the next time I ordered, I, I stubbornly said, you know, this is, I, I'm, go, I'm going to order my pepperoni and Italian sausage pizza. And when I opened up that box and I saw those little Italian sausage peaches staring up at me like angry eyes. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I, I stopped ordering sausages on my pizza. And, and I had no idea what pepperoni is made out of, and I wasn't going to find out. <laughs> so to make a long story short, I finished reading the Old Testament in an epic reading marathon of around three weeks. I, I, I couldn't get enough. <clears throat> In three weeks, I, I just couldn't get enough. God clearly had me changed to his word, chained to his word, and he wasn't letting go. And I got, I got to the end, and, and you know, I knew there was an aspect of God's love that was in the Old Testament, but it was completely overshadowed by a danger zone. All I could think of was that God is big. God is powerful. God is holy. God is wrathful and demands obedience. God is judge, jury, executioner, all wrapped up in a single package of righteous anger. I mean, how the heck am I supposed to relate to an all-powerful God who could nuke me in a heartbeat for just looking at him cross-eyed? I mean, yeah, I didn't know what to make of this big God, and I, I couldn't relate to this big God. So I, I celebrated finishing the Old Testament with a, with a pizza and, yeah, no sausage, and I, I kind of took a peek in the New Testament, see what was coming up, and, and noticed that this Jesus guy was starting to be mentioned. I was kind of, you know, eating the pizza and wondering, you know, I wonder what kind of, kind of person this guy is going to be. Is he going to be a prophet? You know, is he going to be a king or just like any other person in the Bible? So I got to Matthew 1.1 and started reading. This is a genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. <laughs> Not more genealogies. I mean, I, I, I did read through all that stuff in, in the Old Testament, but it, was, it wasn't fun. And I'm thinking, more genealogies? 
But fortunately, it, it, the list looked short, and I was kind of gratified to remember seeing some of the names listed in there as pivotal roles of people in the, in the Old Testament. But now we're stuck with a different problem. This Jesus guy quickly started <clears throat> leading the pack for Bible characters. I mean, the guy could heal people. He could cast out demons. Not only is, te- not only is Jesus telling about God's Old Testament, but he seems to be making things stinking worse, if that's even possible, by saying, I'm committing adultery if I even look at a woman lustfully. And, you know, my pornography addiction was a real thing. So, so and then, then, then just this Jesus guy forgives sins. Who is this guy? I started thinking about the Old Testament prophets. And I mean, the Old Testament prophets clearly spoke from God. But this Jesus guy, he kind of seems to be teaching of his own accord. So after reading about the resurrection of Jesus, I, I, I had more questions than, than answers. And I continued on through Mark. Got to Mark 7, 17 to 19. And, and to this Jesus, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Jesus said, are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out again. In saying this, Jesus declared, all food's clean. (laughs) Yes, and I immediately ordered a large pizza with extra Italian sausage and and pepperoni. (laughs) So, hind, hind, work back to me to hindsight number five. Uh, context is critically important. I mean, I, we all know this. And, you know, if, if I could have probably avoided a lot of, of sausage deprivation if I knew more context. Um, you know, and, and it's easy to apply context by reading a sentence or two before and after a verse. And, you know, sometimes we need to go to the context of the entire paragraph or the chapter or the book and, you know, even the Bible as a whole. And so context is important. You can get yourself wrapped up in the things that are, that are unnecessary. So work back with me to John 14:1, where Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust in me. And I'm thinking to myself, who the heck does this guy think he is? I mean, trust in God, absolutely. But in the same breath, trust in a human? I mean, seriously. I mean, that sounds like blasphemy. I mean, it's just, that's just nuts. So I can see that I'm nearing the end of the Gospel of John, and, I, and, I, and I'm baffled. On the one hand... God is, is too powerful and huge to relate to. I mean, he, he's the danger zone. And on the other hand, I see this Jesus person who's loving and compassionate, yet telling it like it is. Sin, heaven, hell. I mean, he performs miracles, forgives sins, claims to be without sin. And how the heck does that work? I mean, every person in the Old Testament was without sin. Um, you know, he claimed to be king. And he radically called people to give up everything that they had and follow him. How the heck do I believe in a holy God that I can't relate to 
And how the heck do I believe in a man that I can't relate to, this Jesus guy, but he claims such absurdly ridiculous authority? What right does any human have to claim for that kind of authority? So some of us... Some of us have scripture verses that are, that are so significant to us that we call them life verses. And I've got two. Here's my first one. Um, leading up to this, you know, Jesus was crucified and, and raised from the dead. <clears throat> but doubting Thomas hasn't seen him. He hasn't touched him and he wants to see him and he's, and he's going to touch him before he believes. And so when Doubting Thomas does, and we read John 20, 28, and Thomas said to him, my Lord, <laughs> you know, I've read this verse probably a hundred times. Did <laughs> you think I'd get over it? Um, but my Lord and my God, and in that instant, this is, this is what was going through my mind. And, and you know, I hate reading things out of order. I, I, I think it's the most absurd thing that somebody reads the last chap, page or two of a book, of a novel. And, and I hate watching previews of movies or, or trailers. I just don't want anything to do with it. It kind of takes the, I don't know, the suspense out of it. But, but this was an important revelation, and I had to find confirmation. So I started scanning the first chapter or two of each book, flipping forward until I came across Titus 2.13. While we waited for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, that was confirmation. It finally made sense. Jesus Christ is God. And, and that's how Jesus had the radical authority to do the things he said and to say the things he did, or backwards. <laughs> but, and, and you know what? That's how I can relate to the giant God of the universe. I mean, they're both one and the same. It just brought everything into perfect clarity at that point in time. So time warp with me back to, to hindsight number six in your, in your handout. Jesus is God, John 20, 28. You know, it was only later that I understood the fuller implications that Jesus was God. I mean, many believe that, that Jesus was a great prophet, a great teacher, but they deny the deity of Christ, which is the dividing line between world religions, cults, and true Christianity. <clears throat> Now, I've debated with Jehovah's Witnesses a couple of times, and um, I stopped doing that since, and it, it's, it's pretty much a fruitless effort. But one person said that, said flat out, said, the Trinity is something that must be taught. No one would come up with that on their own. And so I said, let me tell you how God saved me. Because I understood that Jesus Christ was God through the plain, simple reading of his word, and it wasn't something that I was told or taught to or indoctrinated by anybody. So, I mean, praise God for how he reveals, next one in your handout, himself to humanity through simply reading his Bible. So I have the big picture now, but 
how does this apply to me? I mean, Jesus said to believe in him, but to believe what? I mean, there's a thousand things to believe about Jesus, a thousand things to believe about God. Believe what? And how, what do I, I'm asking myself, what do I need to go to heaven? How am I saved? And so I kept those questions in the back of my mind, hoping to find answers to the, you know, as I continued reading in the Bible. And, and I came to my second life verse, Romans 10, 9 to 10, <clears throat> that if you confess with your mouth, confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And, and there was my answer in, in plain English. So hindsight number seven in your bulletin. Jesus is Lord. I mean, it, it, we know that. Um, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, I can't even count the number of times that I read that Jesus was Lord. And even more so was that Jesus was King. So in your bulletin, if Jesus is Lord... And Jesus is king, and, you know, Lord serve kings. kings, kings are it. And if Jesus is God, kings serve God, God is it. That means Jesus is, is the Lord God, he's the supreme Lord. I mean, he's infinity and beyond is, is the lordship of Jesus. And, and like I said, I couldn't even count the number of times where I remembered reading that God was Lord and Jesus was Lord. And so hindsight number eight. Knowledge does not save you. And there's a couple of scripture verses there, and, and they're pretty much self-explanatory. I mean, demons and Satan, they, they have their theology down pat. And Judas, of all people, he had intimate knowledge but was doomed to destruction. So confessing with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, had huge implications. I mean, this was much more than an intellectual acknowledgement. I mean, an atheist could read that quote, Jesus is Lord. An atheist could understand the facts of the resurrection, but that wouldn't save him any more than it would save me. You know, and the word confess in there, it, it, you know, it implies concession. It implies con submission. It, it implies confessing our sins. I mean, the very word itself implies a relationship where Jesus is Lord and we are his servant. I mean, it's clear from the Old Testament that God demands obedience. I was that, there's no question about it. Boom, nuke, you're dead if you don't. And Jesus, that, just that much more. I mean, Jesus demanded radical obedience. I mean, leave your father and mother. Sell everything you had to buy a treasure of great worth. A rich man required to sell everything before he could follow Jesus. And, and I, I remember Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? And so all these things, the more were rolling them out in my head, the only problem was what I wasn't ready for such a radical commitment. I, I wanted to finish reading the Bible and see what more I could learn. But I made sure I bookmarked that section, that Romans 10, 9 to 10. Um, continued reading, but, you know, I was noticing that a lot of what I re was reading wasn't really particularly applying to me. Um, I was reading teachings and, and instructions to, to someone following God for those who believed, and I, and I could sense and knew that I didn't belong to that group. So I continued reading and learning, um, kept flipping back to that Romans 10, 9, and 10, contemplating 
saying out loud with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. And you know, the, the weird thing is, is oddly enough, my head was doing okay, but my heart was starting to be pulled behind my head. My head was dragging onto my heart. And I, I got to John, or 1 John 4.16, and, and it said it was simple. It said, God is love. And, you know, there was my heart proof. When I was reading the Old Testament, I knew God's love was there, kind of, sort of. But, I mean, all I could see was this great, big, huge, wrathful God. And, you know, when I got to the New Testament, I could see Jesus' love and God's love united. But, you know, this verse just kind of brought God into harmony. Yes, God is righteous in his judgment and wrath. But his love shined out from that verse. My heart and my mind were united, but I was confronted with a struggle. I knew the basics. I knew there was a lot I didn't know and comprehend, but I knew enough to understand that I didn't have a relationship with God, and I knew how to solve that. You know, I don't know if this is a thing today for kids today, but when I was a kid, and you, you had to be careful when other kids made a promise to you, especially if they had their hand behind their back. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So, I mean, if you crossed your fingers, it invalidated a promise, and it invalidated anything you said. And you know what kind of ticked me off? I mean, it was just kind of a slap in the face when, when a a kid would pull out crossed fingers when it appeared they gave me a promise. And so, I mean, it got to the point of being ridiculous. I mean, if a promise was really important, you had this kid stand here and, and you had him take his shoes and socks off because you had to make sure that they didn't cross their toes. <laughs> you, you had them stand up straight so that they didn't cross their legs, arms out to the arms out to the side so they didn't cross the arms, hands and fingers out wide, and you look them in the eye so that they didn't cross their eyes. <laughs> and, and so I knew there was no way that I could fool God. And, and you know, surprisingly enough, even more importantly, I didn't want to dishonor God by pretending. I wanted to be sure that I was honest with myself in my decision to follow Jesus because I knew God demanded no less of me. He would know if I was crossing any part of my body, mind, soul. He would know that if I said, Jesus is Lord, he would know that. He would know that. You know, I, I instinctively understood that said Jesus was Lord meant submitting my life to him as his servant. And so it was, it was before continuing on through Revelation that I prayed an earnest prayer while reading Romans 10.9. I, I read Romans 10.9 out loud, said, Jesus is Lord, and believed in my heart that God raised him from the dead. I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins, Ask God to forgive me for my sins. You know, and again, I remember specifically reading and praying Romans 10, 9 out loud with my heart, my mind, and my fingers uncrossed. 
And, and that was the moment that God saved the sinner. <laughs> so I finished reading Revelation. And, you know, I still look back and ought to think that, that I had read the entire Bible in five weeks. God hooked me. He had me hooked, line and sinker. I mean, five weeks of eating and drinking and sleeping God's word, five weeks of, of soul searching, five weeks of devouring information like I was hooked up to a fire hydrant. And after a lifetime of pride and arrogance and self, all of that destroyed in five weeks. Praise God. So, you know, I have, I have a whole lot more to share about how God raised me in my, in my early Christian growth and life that I think are probably about as compelling as reading God's word in five weeks, but <laughs> didn't have time. Um, but, you know, I, it, being able to stand behind this podium and, and, and praising God for the work that he did, I don't claim any credit to this. So my, my question to you is, in, in leaving you with this thought, is if you haven't done so, uncross your mind, body, soul, and fingers. Read Romans 10, 9 out loud, with the, out loud as a prayer to God. Ask him to forgive you your sins. Submit your life to Jesus Christ as your, as your Lord, God, and Savior. And may that be the moment that God saves another sinner. So worship team. Come on up. Father God, I, I just stand in awe of you. Thank you that you revealed yourself through your word and that through your word and through your word only, it is sufficient to save a wretched sinner like me that you revealed yourself as my Lord and God without anybody prompting me or teaching me, Lord. It was you who was prompting me and teaching me. And thank you again for, for how you saved my wretched life. And, and I just pray, Lord, that, that you would use this time to, for others to contemplate their walk with you and, and, and maybe uncross their minds and souls and, and give their lives to you. And so thank you again for all you've done and all your work. In Christ's name, amen.